You're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. This episode was recorded during lockdown. Please forgive any issues with sound quality. Hi and welcome to The Buzz. In this episode, we're shooting for the moon, hoping to find out more about that mysterious ball in the sky and asking, what can we learn from it? We're over the moon to be speaking to two University of Manchester alumni who have since gone on to forge stellar careers. Nat Curran, who is at NASA, and Fran McDonald, who's at the European Space Agency. But first, it's time, Corey, for your next quiz. So this one, as you might have guessed, is all about the moon. Um, So I've got some moon facts, and all I need you to do is tell me whether they are true or false. Are you ready? I am ready, yep. True or false? The moon has earthquakes, but these are called moonquakes. Yep, that's true. I think that's true. You're correct. It is true. Uh, so moonquakes can last up to half an hour, but they are less powerful than earthquakes. Okay. Okay. True. Uh, did you do any other research on that yet? Did, like, has there been a moonquake when someone's been on the moon? Not that I know of. Okay. And you would know. You would know. I, I am the moon expert, <laughs> um, as you will find out from these questions. Um, so, true or false, the moon is moving closer to the Earth. No, nah, see, I think this is false, and I know this because I think in like Jurassic Park or something, the moon's really <laughs> big, and it's because the moon used to be closer, and so I think it's moving away. Right. That could well be true because you're correct. It is false. The moon is moving around 3.8 centimetres away from the Earth each year, as evidenced by Jurassic Park. Okay, you're doing well so far. Yes. So true or false, only 11 people have ever walked on the moon. Oh, is it 11? Is it 11? I know it's a small number. Yep. And in my head, it's either 11 or 13. So I'm going to go with... (laughs) I'm going to go with 11, true. I'm afraid it's false. Is it 13? Do not tell me it's 13. It's not 13 either. It's 12. Oh, wow. So you were were close. You were either side. Sure. Um, Yeah. 12 people have walked on the moon and they've all been American men. Yes. So I think it's about time we we change that (laughs) soon. To English men, is that what you're saying? (laughs) English men and women. Sure. Um, So... True or false, Sting came up with the lyrics to the police song Walking on the Moon while drunk in a hotel room, but he was initially singing Walking Around the Room. So this is a very tenuous link to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do not know what the song is. Um, I do, you do not? not know a lot. No, I do not know. Not... Do you know who Sting is? Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> Although I don't know if I'd be able to pick him out of a lineup. Um, uh, I'm going to go with lineup. True. That is true. Oh, well done. Lucky guess. Um, yeah, not much more to add to that. Um, true or false, the moon is not perfectly round. It's more of an egg shape. Okay, so I know that the Earth isn't 100% spherical. It has little dips at the, the poles. And mm. I wonder if the moon is similar. So I'm going to go with the moon is not a perfectly spherical. You are correct again. It isn't. It is more of an egg shape, and the the oval shape is due to the Earth's gravitational pull. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I before my research, I was not aware of that. 
because it certainly looks very cool from, from, from Earth. Okay, true or false, the word moon derives from the word man. Oh, uh, okay. Um, moon. I hadn't even thought where we get the, the name moon from because like Luna, the Latin, right? That's like, what? Is that, isn't like a wolf? Lu, what's that? Yeah, Maybe yeah. It, there's, there's connections to uh, lunacy, lunatic, yes. that kind of thing as well. And werewolves and stuff, maybe. I'm going to go with moon, man, no, false. You're correct again. That is false. Uh, so you can actually trace the word moon back to the Proto-Indo-European word mensis, which means month. Oh, which, that makes sense. Which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a cool little fact. Yeah. Um Okay, you're doing you're doing really well. Yeah, so I'm doing see, well. If you, see if you can keep it up. Um, true or false? Moon dust smells like gunpowder. Ooh. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go. Yeah. You're correct again. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> no, I feel like I'm I'm teaching you. <laughs> so yeah, so the astronaut Harrison Jack Schmidt liken the smell of moon dust to gunpowder during the Apollo 17 mission. Um, and apparently the dust has caused some astronauts to complain of a type of lunar hay fever. Ah, so I have a fact for you, I think, about stuff like this. Oh. So there's a guy, I think he's called The Nose. I think he works for NASA. And right. he has to, I think it's if he's going to the International Space Station or something, he has to smell every item that's going to go there because the astronauts are in like a confined space with it. So it can't wow. be offensive to the nose. And his job is just to smell stuff. Wow. Um, so maybe what an amazing he, job. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, I think that's true. I hope that's true. <laughs> I feel like I'm spreading misinformation. If, not, if one of our listeners wants to comment to say um, it's definitely true. Yeah. We'll put a little disclaimer on that one. Sure. An asterisk. It's a, it's a maybe. Okay. So your final question. Um, true or false? So Walter Cronkite, who anchored CBS's coverage of the first moon landing, was given the name Old Iron Pants. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, why not? That sounds like a cool name. I'd want that name, I think. <laughs> it is a cool name and it is a correct answer. Yes. So uh, he was given the nickname after being on air for 27 of the 30 hours that it took the Apollo 11 wow. crew to complete their mission. Uh, it was also known as the most trusted man in America. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, seems like a cool guy. And you, Corey, have got seven out of eight. Hey, that's pretty good, is, that. Which is a fantastic return. Yeah. Brilliant. So obviously you know a lot about the moon, but uh, our actual moon experts are Nat and Fran, and we can hear our interview with them now. We've obviously already visited the moon and we've researched it uh, to an extent. Can you tell us what, what we've already learned from visiting the moon? I don't even know where to start. <laughs> like, there's been 50 years of work on just the samples that we've returned from Apollo. Uh, and as time progresses and, you know, we get new technologies, new instruments and stuff, we learn new things about the moon that we never previously did when the samples first came back, you know, 50 years ago. Um, for instance, 
when we first looked at these Apollo samples, we thought there was no water on the moon at all. We thought it was just a bone dry, airless body. And, you know, there's no, uh, the, the, there was no water anywhere across the moon. But now with better technology, like better instruments, we found that there is water trapped in some of the minerals that you find in say like a rock that comes from a volcanic explosion. So like uh, rocks that come from volcanoes, we usually, we generally call uh, some of them are uh, basalts. And in the minerals contained in these basalts, we have uh, small, uh, small amounts of water. So there's no puddles or oceans on the water, uh, on the moon even, but there is definitely water trapped inside of these. And this is kind of an interesting, uh, like, um, information to understand how the like internal heat flow of the moon kind of evolved over time as well. Yeah, it's I, I can see why you're like stumped initially now because the whole like what have we learned? It's really a hard to unpiece the what have we learned? What are we still learning? What new questions is it presenting? So it's like we've learned a lot, but it triggers more that we want to find out. So it's not said like this. Was it this completely dry, dusty ball? Well, yeah, we thought for quite a long time. It was, but now that we found this kind of water locked up, like within the minerals, uh, not necessarily just she said running around, but perhaps um, in a, bound chemically. Um, but these were were found like within these glass beads as well. These were were measured, and these glass beads are erupted, and they come from quite deep within the interior of the moon. And by the time you've done some analysis and inferred about the origins of this water, it, there it, it perhaps indicates that you know, you can speculate that maybe there's some local regions of the interior of the moon that actually has has a hydration comparable with some parts of the interior of the Earth. So we're not to say that that's everywhere and that it's completely the same, but it's, you know, it's by going back and revisiting this, these rock collections over the, the 50 years, as Nat said, that we've been able to start to, to learn, oh, it's not just dry and dusty. We can go and revisit and keep revisiting these these rocks to, to learn this. And it's not just, just water, you sort of, um, you see this with um, other light elements and volatile elements, like some of them we thought that just weren't there and were completely depleted from the moon. Actually, maybe there are, there are some there. And that can tell you a lot about the origin of the Earth and the moon as well. There's this, this idea of the, the Earth and moon having a common origin, this giant impact. And that's because not only do you see some of these differences between Earth and moon, such as loss of water, but you see actually quite a lot of similarities. I think that was one of the really huge things that jumped out when you first brought these rocks back was just actually how similar these basic building blocks of the the solar system are and what similarities there are between the earth and moon and just such similarities that they must have had quite a common starting point this this so-called um big bang but the new one not big bang sorry this um giant impact uh, but the nuances of what was involved in that impact what was retained what was lost like water these are questions we still need to be answering um, and that 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 requires um more science and revisiting the moon to be done i was going to say one of the coolest things that you can uh, look up just about the water not, not even just about the water in the moon but whether like some of this water is trapped uh, they're called orange glass beads and if you just search apollo orange glass beads you'll find these like really cool little images of what the soil actually looks like under a microscope. And, uh, you know, everyone, I mean, I imagine most people look up at the moon and just see this gray ball with a bit of white, a bit of dark, uh, but there's actually orange soil on the moon. I always find that really mind blowing. It's not only um, orange, you can get these, um, 
The orange ones are particularly cool, I'll grant you that. Wow. But um, you, you can get them in an array of colors. You can get them in black, you can get them in green even. They can actually listen to some of the um, recorded footage of the astronauts talking. They're just like, I'm seeing green. I'm seeing green over you. You can hear the fascination in their voice as well as they suddenly see in amongst the gray, this, this green color jumping out at them. So there's a lot more going on up there than you think. It's not just this 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 gray as mm -hmm. as Matt said. I think I think for me along alongside the water story, one of the biggest things about the moon is actually everything we kind of really know about the basis of planetary formation has been inferred from even the very first uh, Apollo 11 samples that that were returned. So um, if you consider you've got uh, these, these rocky, crusty planetary bodies, and you've got a mantle, this molten mantle, and then these iron cores in the middle. How do we know that? We can't look inside the Earth. We can try and infer some of this using geophysical techniques, but we really start to actually understand this from some of the geochemistry, from bringing these rocks back and really looking at them. And it, it was um, Wood et al. that in the 1970s, from the very first samples, found these little pieces of um, what plagioclase rich rocks that are called anorthosites. And they were able to infer and this 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 model, this hypothesis. We start with this superheated molten ball, if you consider this very highly energetic origin of an impact. Um, and within that, you've got all the chemistry mixed in there. And if you look at the kind of crystallization sequence of when you form form rocky bodies, if you have these kind of iron-rich and um, magnesium-rich minerals that are quite dense and they crystallize out first and sink. You're then left with this kind of calcium and these plagioclase type material that I'm talking about that, that makes up the, the crust and the density difference means that floats and that creates, that starts to crystallize later. And this is where you start to get this crust with a mantle and then the kind of heavier core in the middle. And it, that was all inferred and really explored through looking at that geochemistry. And then now you've been able to feed this into the, the models as well that look at the dynamics of planetary. Uh, bodies and you really start to build that picture and that's just all from one tiny little bit of rock that was found in those first samples you're able to build up this picture and really learn about this before that we really didn't have any understanding of this and you can extend that out to, to, to rocky planetary bodies across the, the solar system as well so really learning about the the origins of planets our, our place within the within the, the, the solar system as well. Where where did Earth come from, not just the moon and other bodies? Yeah, and I think, I guess, I think we would both be in trouble, Fran, if we didn't mention just the whole impact history of uh, yes. the solar system <laughs> as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, considering what we do. Uh, so we're, we've learned a lot about uh, the like, impact uh, like chronology and... Uh, history of the inner solar system just from the moon uh, and that has big implications for like when we think life might have started on earth as well uh, so we have this one big thing called the late heavy bombardment where we think it was about over 3.8 3.9 billion years ago or between 4.2 and 3.9 billion years ago so we weren't even a thought back then but um we think there was a a period of intense bombardment where these huge asteroids like uh not quite planet size but like very very huge asteroids and comets were probably hitting the uh surface of the moon and because the moon's so close to us you know it's our nearest and dearest neighbor um it's likely those same kind of projectiles were hitting the earth at the same time as well so there was probably a, a decline 
of these impacts after about 3.9 billion years. And that kind of led to uh, an increase in what we see for, you know, biology on the earth. Uh, so we're trying to, we're trying to put these, uh, jigsaw pieces together and see how they connect and what it means for like the evolution of earth as well so it's it's really um it's really hard to find that um record preserved on the earth because you have weathering you have oceans you have the earth and the rest of it so the moon is incredible at recording this this record that would be lost to us otherwise and as Nat said it's it's near enough for us to be able to be looking at it and exploring it on different scales so looking at how these huge impact basins form to these smaller ones it's it's, it's really sort of um preserved a window back in time for what was happening to the the early earth and the inner solar system it's just it's very hard pinning down ages um so we use orbital data sets to look at if you've got a big crater and you've got a smaller one that's on top of it you know that the one that's gone on top of it is younger that must have occurred after the first one underneath it so you can do a comparative timeline but to be able to put some sort of absolute time sequences between these comparative timelines that's how where you've been able to date uh, minerals within the rocks themselves and, and understand but you do get these figures that keep coming up of around 3.9 billion years so is that a significant time does this represent a huge bombardment period or is it a bit of an artifact of this the relatively small region that we've we've brought rocks back from the kind of near side equatorial region are we just seeing one big event from there that that sort of overprinted everything so this is where you really we've sort of say you can generate more questions and answers sometimes through what we've learned already you really need to be going back and exploring the, the global um the moon as a whole globally going to the polar regions the far side to really piece this together and to be able to some more absolute ages in there because we extract these ages across the solar system as nat said it's it's not just just on the moon so this is where we can we can really go back and learn more to address these questions on a global scale and not least that it, that is the main um the main process really carving out the the surface of the moon and if you look at uh lunar reconnaissance orbiter images of the near side and the far side moon there's a there's quite a distinct difference between them so we really don't understand what controlled that on the, the far side it's dominantly this very ancient white highland uh, crust and on the near side you've got more of these um, impact basins that have then since been flooded with this black basaltic lava so, so why is there such a stark contrast between the near and far side through these is it is it just the impacting history is there something else about when that crust was forming through that um, differentiation process talked about so these these are all questions to keep exploring but we didn't even know these questions until we had been there and picked up the rocks to to, to check and and find this out so so this is all the, the interest for us to keep going and exploring the moon and it's, it's wrapped up in what we're learning and what we're still learning. I know you mentioned uh, different regions of the moon there. How, how much have we actually uh, visited and researched so far? For, for, for where the rocks have actually come from and where you've had landers land and return rocks from, whether that's through the lunar um, the, the Soviet um, lunar missions are through Apollo. Nat's got a pretty good analogy for that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, that I have. I do, actually, yeah. Yeah, all of the Apollo missions so far have landed on the... Uh, or so, all, not so far, but all of the Apollo missions landed on the near-side equatorial region. Um, so we've never actually, like, landed people on the far side or the polar regions. Hopefully that's going to change in the next few years. So it'd be quite exciting to see some of those other regions. Rovers have been a little bit further out. 
but still not as far as what we would uh, really, really uh, like them to be. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I heard a really good analogy uh, once of um, you know uh, of the Apollo Eleven uh, landing. So they, they, you know, they got out. They spent two hours on the surface. So that was our first moon landing. They grabbed some samples, did some experiments. They spent two hours there. And the whole distance that they went was no more than, I mean, I'm in America now, so I use the baseball analogy. So no more than the inner field, yeah, inner field of a, a baseball uh, uh, pitch. Or, or I don't know, I think it's a pitch. But uh, for a football, for a football, we'll bring it back home. So like, for a football pitch, it was only like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only like one half of a football pitch wow. they walked. So you imagine an alien looking at Earth, thinking, okay, this massive ball, we want to go and go to the Earth, figure out a, pl- a spot. We can land in one spot, figure out a spot where we can go and figure out the whole geology of the Earth. I was like, where would you pick? Like one spot, but half a football pitch on the Earth to decide the decide the kind of creation of the all the whole earth i was like i would it's likely that the biggest target that they'll choose is the ocean because you know it's what like 70 percent of the earth anyway right but that's not going to explain the rocky stuff that's on earth and stuff and it's just kind of the same with the uh, the moon i know there's not an ocean there but there are so many different regions that are kind of are really complex that we don't have that data for uh, which would be really good to go back, return, and get some uh, samples from. Yeah, um, no, that what we have been able to learn from that small bit is in, incredible. But and we've been able to fill in a little bit with orbital data sets and meteorites, which uh, will represent all over the surface. You just won't exactly know where from. Um, but to really understand, to get the ground truth, to go there and know exactly what you're picking up and where it came from, to to understand the global scale, yeah, we need to go beyond half a football pitch, yeah. basically. I do have uh, some meteorites in hand. Like these are a few lunar meteorites, uh, just lying on my desk, just just for uh, oh, wow. just for talk. Well, we're all virtual, so you know, yeah. These are lunar ones, yeah. They're lunar uh, ones. So I don't know. I know my yeah. Uh, I know, right? Yeah, this is, I mean, so we, me and Fran are used to dealing with lunar samples, but this sample right <laughs> in my hand now is massive. We've never, we never get samples this big uh, on loan from anywhere. They're always <laughs> tiny little specks of samples that were, you know, trying not to sneeze and like lose, but um, yeah. And, and they range from, soil, you know, bags of soil to hand specimen size samples like this to uh, actual three meter core samples how many moon rocks do we have is it like a uh like a bathtub amount or is it even less than that i bet you we've got a couple of bathtubs worth for sure <laughs> didn't someone steal some wasn't isn't that a story that someone stole some moon samples or something i believe so i believe it was an intern right yeah there was a story about was it students or interns or something they they were yeah. returned they were caught there was I don't know the full mm. details about it but they're not normally stole I think there's a few little bits of them kind of not being fully tracked when they they did the kind of political exchanging with other countries part that kind of it mm. but yeah to, for yeah. the most part they are pretty well looked after by the curation team at GIST Very well. so I don't want yeah. to take anything away from the curation staff no. so it would have been before before their time for some of them but um 
yeah, there are there are some stories of these these kind of missing pieces, but I think that yeah. that comes from diplomats passing them on rather than them getting stolen normally. And uh, me and Fran, we, uh, we haven't uh, stolen anything. Let's put it that way. Yeah, we've <laughs> not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, me and Fran last year got to actually see the curation facilities, which were really cool. Uh, they have a you know like a massive safe with all of these uh, beautiful samples in. Uh, and they like do an amazing job of keeping them pristine and uh, not touching the Earth's atmosphere. If you know they're bagged up, sealed, and stuff like that, so they're 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 taken really nice care of. It's the kind of place I want to retire to. But where is that? It's Johnson's Space Center in Houston. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, there's this huge, it's still the original building. So they, they originally, it was the Lunar Receiving Lab when the rocks first came back. And, and now it's um, uh, the extraterrestrial materials curation facility because it extends beyond just, just moon material there. And they're also having huge overhaul and fixtures and fittings put in for future missions with the materials coming back from asteroids and the rest of it. So they're really updating and, and making sure that, that the curation carries on through to the future and learning lessons from the past but yeah when you get there this 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 vault is literally called the vault this huge like <laughs> vault door that the the, the the pristine samples are kept behind and then yeah. within the clean room you, you have to go through your kind of um you look like you're scrubbing up for surgery almost it's it's it's, it's not the sexiest of times is it now um you go in and you need a little white onesie and each Apollo uh, mission has its own dedicated cabinet as well so there's no cross-contamination between them either and when we say cabinet, we mean these um, yeah. positive pressure, nitrogen-controlled atmospheres. So as Nat said, we're never touching even the Earth, the Earth environment. Are there uh, any plans, do you know, for returning to the moon anytime soon? Yeah, um, there's a few different routes on the way, I guess. Uh, I know Fran will talk about one. Uh, I guess uh, over here at NASA, there is the plan to go back with uh, the next man and the first woman in the next, oh, in 2024. So, you know, in the next few years, hopefully we'll have uh, people back uh, with boots on the ground that uh, will go to places like the South Pole. So different from the Apollo missions, um, uh, although it's cool, Artemis, the Artemis mission. So Artemis is uh, the sister of Apollo, which is a nice, unique uh, follow-on from the original missions um so yeah in the next few years we'll have uh, boots back on the ground and collecting samples and have our artemis generation as well which is i don't know i'm really excited because you know more samples but also diff from different regions as well so it's going to be yeah it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting few years and fran i'll let you talk about uh the lunar missions I was just going to say, it's about chuffing time, really, isn't it? So we've had some incredible missions in between with the um, the orbital data sets. Like, well, that really has, in the meantime, been a game changer for what we have been learning, extending on the more global scale. But all of those are calibrated to what we know from the, as we said, this relatively restricted region of where the Apollo samples were from. So to be able to go and really explore and at a much finer scale than the footprints of these orbital data sets, which can be averaged over several kilometers sometimes to really understand what's happening there and to really explore the subsurface as well we need to go there both initially ro robotically but as, as nat said there's this, this drive for humans 
to return and to have these like human robotic partnerships. So, and this is actually quite exciting where it was exciting and inspirational enough before with all the kind of political driven and the, the, the space race before, but now there's really quite, there's a big international interest, a big effort to really get get back there to, together actually. So of course there's still a little bit of political going on, but um, I get a bit more insight of the, the overall workings of it, not just the pure science case from actually working at the, the European Space Agency part, learning lots, it's, it's, it's a complicated beast, such an agency representing quite so many countries and, and opinions and, and different drivers. But there's um, within ESA, you've got ESA Roscosmos, so with the, the Russian Space Agency, you've got the, a, a prospect uh, mission coming out and that's that's going to be a lander in a, in a polar region that's really going to drill down and do some really cool detailed laboratory analysis looking at the the kind of the uh, what they hope to expect to be a volatile region of the moon so really looking at not just the the bulk makeup of what's there but looking even more detailed looking at isotopic analysis so there's different isotope systems um so they're different um sort of masses of elements that you can look at. And the way that you, the ratio between these different uh, masses of elements can really tell you about some of the processes that have gone on. So not just telling you, is there volatiles there, but really understanding perhaps where did they come from and how have they been, how have they evolved or, or been preserved or lost from, from the moon. So that's gonna be really cool to learn about that. Did some of these materials and volatiles that were there, were they there originally? Did they survive this giant impact? Um, or were they delivered later, perhaps by asteroids or comets or from interaction with the, the space weather, sort of solar wind implantation that you get from the, the sun. You can have all this chemistry happening that can, can really change what does, does go on in the history of the, um, not just reshaping the surface, but actually even some of the compositions there. So that, that's a really, really cool project that's coming up. But not only that, there's, there's lots of opportunities. So part of the Artemis program is to, it's, it's, not just, it's not just this idea of get boots back on the moon. It's a really thought out uh, process and all international involvement is, is happening as well. So that you, you start with these wave of robotics missions and there's these commercial lunar partnerships uh, missions called CLIPS with NASA. And that's involved with sort of development of instruments and, and, and science sort of bit in the background towards that. There's going to be a lot of European opportunities and payloads being going on those as, as well. And then there's Gateway. Gateway's coming up. That's that's intrinsic. So this is going to be this, this unusual, very highly um, halo kind of orbit uh, around the moon. But that, that's going to be a really a game changer in helping to get humans there and how you can perhaps maybe do some telecommand robotics at the surface using that. Um, but also a project that I'm, I'm involved in, again, sort of being a little bit European centric here for me, is exploring how can ESA be involved with helping out with the lunar surface activity. So we're looking at this kind of concept of a one and a half ton, so that's pretty big lander, um, one and a half being tons being what it can carry, not the lander itself. And it's called the European Large Logistic Lander. So I'm helping uh, study concepts with that, but really with a focus on how can we incorporate science both robotically and towards human missions at the surface and try to help identify what are some of the key technologies that are needed how can the science and technology interact and what would those mission scenarios look like and we're really looking at not just the kind of geology focused stuff that matt and i are more used to doing but how else can you use the moon it's not only is it incredible to learn about the moon it's, a, it's an uh, amazing platform in itself it's a unique laboratory where you can be conducting sort of biosciences and 
and fundamental physics, but it's a great radio quiet platform to be looking out into the deep universe and trying to look for those, those the dark cosmic ages, those early signals um, and other black voodoo physics stuff that I don't really know too much about. But um, yeah, there's so much that can be, be done with the moon. So we're really exploring uh, exploring that at, at the moment. But it's not just Europe and uh, America. You've got Chinese with their Chang'e missions. They've got a really good plan out there and you've got new actors you've got you've got israel and like united arab emirates you've got all these new players coming into it there's this interest there really is this this global um interest in getting back to the moon not only for the science preparation for long-term human um sustained presence at the surface and also preparing for for mars forward as well we really need to learn a lot more linking from all that good work that's been done on the iss and um low earth orbit and these low gravity conditions and space conditions really understanding you can use the moon to to understand how can humans survive in those types of airless or semi-airless planetary bodies ahead of them going onwards to mars as well so there's, there's so much really actually exciting stuff coming up on the moon i think you touched on this slightly there um sure. do you think in the near future there might be an opportunity for humans to spend a, a slightly longer amount of time on the moon I think they're, de they're definitely thinking about moon bases and uh, things like that, things that will help us explore the rest of the, not just the moon, but like explore the rest of the solar system as well. Uh, like Fran, Fran mentioned, you know, um, forward to Mars and also looking at the uh, dark ages of the universe and things like that. The moon is definitely going to be, the, it is, I, don't, I mean, a lot of people say it's the stepping stone to Mars, but it's also its be our own beautiful stone uh to go and explore uh as an like an individual as well and do do different science projects from as well uh but i i remember hearing a really great uh rocket science uh talk once and rocket science can be really complicated i'm not a physicist uh i do some physics but like i'm a geologist so some physics just goes straight over my head um but he 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 met he the the guy that gave us a talk. Uh, his name was uh, Don Petit, and he is a ESA astronaut, I believe, or was he an astronaut? He's an astronaut anyway. And um, he gave us a so he'd been to the ISS multiple times. It was, is he, was he NASA? Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, he gave us a really good rocket science talk uh, about. The Apollo missions and the big Saturn V rocket, uh, and the technology that you can use and the fuel. So basically, for that rocket, it was something like over ninety percent of that whole every single one of those missions was all uh, like fuel. Ninety percent of the whole thing was fuel. You know that's including the rocket, the people on it, the rocks brought back, the 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 science and technology that they had, all the equipment. 90% of it was fuel. Whereas, and that's just because you have to get off this big rock with a massive atmosphere and huge gravity pull. Uh, that is the Earth. Whereas the moon has a lot lower gravity. Uh, so, you know, if you think about it, like if you only need a rocket that only needs, say, 50% fuel to go to Mars from the moon, you can put the rest of that 50% into the technology that you use to go somewhere else. And um, that's the key thing that we, we, we're going to need some improvements in technology to get, you know, across the other side of the solar system or not even to the other side to, to Mars. Uh, and like 
one of my favorite things about learning about the Apollo missions is, you know, calculators weren't even invented then. Um, the data wow. that they brought back, so all those images, everything like that, you know, all the beautiful panoramic images that they've brought back from the surface of each of the Apollo missions. And, uh, you know, when they're collecting a sample, they like they image it a lot first. All of that was like five megabytes. You can't even take an image on your phone for five megabytes today. Like I think they're I think they're generally ten megabytes. So all of that data that we got back was less than uh, you know you could put it on a key fob, uh, you know, to get into your apartment or whatnot. So I, I always find that really fascinating. So uh, something like a moon base, where we can travel from the moon to other planets, would be like is definitely something that uh, would be amazing, or the gateway, or something like that. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, you touched on Mars there. Um, at the time of recording, the Perseverance rover has just landed on Mars, really. Uh, is that something you guys are keeping a close eye on that you're excited about? Yeah, very excited. Like There was a lot of buzz around work because there's a lot of people um, uh, at Goddard that uh, will do that are working on the project. Like My boss is uh, one of the science, scientists on there. So she's now just gone on to Mars time for their, their, their like have meetings every single day. Uh, so I'm like, yeah, it's like messes up, completely messes up your, your sleep pattern. So she's going to be having meetings at like one, two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, so she's like, yeah, be, uh, be patient with me. And we're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. So yeah, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, and I mean, just, you know, I, I was like holding my breath. Like I love the moon. The moon's my passion and stuff, but Landing on a different planet, no matter what it is, is just a, a special moment, I think. And, you know, it was sending pictures back. You know, we got the pictures back within the first five, ten minutes, uh, just seeing the surface of a different planet like Mars. And that, you know, and I, I don't know, it was really cool. And it's red, so yeah. I'm a huge Manchester United fan. So, I, like, Good. I don't want to... Nice. <laughs> like discourage yeah yeah i, don't, I was gonna say i don't want to discourage half of your viewers uh but uh <laughs> yeah like it's mars is red so you know so is manchester it's an awesome color <laughs> yeah exactly right exactly yeah 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 no it was truly awesome yeah there's that sky crane in itself i know they have done it before but it was it was incredible I mean, yeah, I was I was particularly excited. It's uh yeah, they overshot the moon a bit, but you know it's all right. They they landed somewhere, so it's fine. Um, but <laughs> we'll get to the moon another time. <laughs> but it's actually quite. I'm going to bring it back to Europe again. There's quite a lot of European instruments on there as well, so that's really cool. And there's there's one from Norway where it, that's looking at the, all the subsurface structure and the geology there. It can help to detect if there's ice water and salty brines and sort of conditions for for life there as well. And there's a Spanish instrument on there that is essentially a weather station. So it's really looking at like the wind speeds and directions and the temperatures looking at the atmosphere as well um and also um east has got the at the moment the uh gas trace orbiter um going around it that's really looking at the atmosphere exploring what that looks like looking for signs of life through that way and looking how water has been lost from from mars and then that's going to have a follow-up rover in a few 
few years. Um, hasn't quite got there yet. Didn't have, it hasn't sorted out its parachutes yet, like the, <laughs> like uh, NASA have, but I think we're getting there. Um, and then also there's going to be the Rosalind Franklin rover in a few years as well, which is going to also follow up. But not, not only the, um, but the, the, the rover that has just landed it is, is the first, again, in a planned step of, of progressing on for future science as well, where they, it's going to be collecting samples and stashing them as well. And ESA is already putting in the planning for Mars sample return. So looking at this sample fetch rover that in in sort of the 2030 timeframe can then go along and be collecting and bringing those those samples back in there in the future. So, you know, there's, there's already these international partners, these plans forward for for future um, uh, science and missions that can be done. So it's it's a really it's it's not just this one shot landing. It's just really going to keep building and building and creating future opportunities for science. And if we can be doing it on Mars, and we can certainly be doing it on the Moon, where we don't have to have seven to eleven minutes of silence in between, or however however long it is whilst you're waiting to know if you've landed safely or not. So yeah. <laughs> uh, this might be a quite a silly question, but um... Would you like to visit the moon yourself? And if you were there, is there a certain part you'd like to visit? Is there anything you'd like to do? Hell yeah, is my my answer to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, someone put me... As, I mean, I'd want to return. I think my mum would kill me if I didn't return. But like, uh, yeah, I would... But where, where to go? There's so many places. You know, the one thing that I admire about astronauts... I admire because I won't be able to do it, but uh, is that they're very disciplined. They they have a route, they have a structure to what they have. They can go and pick up and uh, the science objectives and stuff they do while they're on the surface. As a geologist, if I got to the moon, uh, that would all go out the window. I'd be like, I want that rock, that rock, that. And, you know, <laughs> I would just be picking up. I would stuff in my pockets and whatnot. Uh, I was like, I don't, I don't need all this oxygen. Just put it in there. You yeah. said that, but they did do it. They did, they did. Yeah, like seatbelt rock. But they did and do stuff it, like didn't that. they? Seatbelt yeah, yeah. rock. Seatbelt rock. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, that's a really yeah, cool story. Which, which yeah. way was it? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty which, sure. It was, I can't remember which Apollo it was, but they did. I feel like it was Apollo 17. Uh, I should know that. Uh, I didn't think it was Jack Smith, but uh, anyway, they had been. Very well trained. That's a brilliant, the brilliant thing about the astronauts is not all of them. As I was saying a little bit before we, you, you managed to get in that about that we are working with Jack Schmidt and that he's the the only scientist to have, um, to walked on the moon. But all the others are really, really well trained. They do a lot of geology field training as well. So they they they're trained, um, tools in the field as well, if you like. Um, and but and it it was proved that although every single little bit of mass and everything's planned out, as Nat said. They they did recognise a particularly interesting rock through their training, and and rather than trying to negotiate it at the time, they just there, there's a story about having to stop and check the seat belt. There's something wrong with the seat belt, and as it was, there an extra rock of curious interest was being smuggled into the collection as it was being. So it's forever known as seat belt rock now. This this rock, so it it, it has happened. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think we'd go a bit crazy. Is I just looked it up. It's Apollo fifteen. I think what I'd I'd quite like to do is I'm a caver. I do caving on on Earth, so I definitely want to explore a moon cave. 
So these can be really unique environments as well that can, you can explore for like future habitation as well. It could be natural places to protect you from extreme temperature changes, from like particle of space weather and radiation. Um, and it could also be perhaps places where volatiles might be um, stored, um, but I'd, I'd love to get down into to a cave. So we, we imagine that these caves are perhaps along the lines of something like you see the in New Zealand, these these lava tubes. We think that there's some of these kind of collapsed lava tubes that perhaps you can can enter through little skylights and see see as caves. So I'd be interested in that. Not least that I really quite like um, uh, magmatism as well. So these are formed through these magmatic processes. So if you can get inside and really be looking at them up close and learning about them, I think that'd be quite cool. And it would mean I could actually get to do some caving, which I don't get to do at the moment, whilst I'm not allowed to go anywhere either. But. <laughs> But uh, yeah, something like that, I think, would be a pretty, pretty cool thing to, to do on the moon. Were you one of those um, people growing up where it's like, oh, the moon, I love the moon. It's amazing. I want to go research the moon. Or was it kind of like kind of almost falling into the moon and, and then realizing how great it was? We're quite different on this. So let Nat go first. Uh, I was definitely on the on the lines of I want to be an astronaut. I want to go to the moon. Yeah. Uh, so I, de- I definitely I, I've from being a little kid, I've always wanted to go an astro- uh, to be an astronaut. And I remember my uncle visiting Kennedy Space Center and bringing me like loads of swag back from, uh, like from the you know Saturn V and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm I'm completely sold. I want to work for NASA and uh, be an astronaut. Uh, so I well, clearly I didn't make it as an astronaut yet. I don't know, like, but now. I was like, I always classify myself as like a lazy astronaut. So, you know, someone who can fly a ship can go and bring me the rocks and like, I, rather than me go and get in the rocks, they just come to me. So that works. Uh, yeah, it was different for me. I, did, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was rubbish. I was, I was just, beer, beer was the thing that I did quite a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> I think people always joke like how many jobs have you had I've always got like a, a story of oh that's like when I worked here and when I worked there so I didn't actually even go to university until I was already 27 so um and I thought yeah perhaps better better sort it out I'm kind of running out of time now but it turns out not I wasn't the oldest one there and it, it wasn't too late um but yeah I was looking at geology I hadn't even considered the moon at this point um just thought I'll go and bother a few rocks get to go out in the field and you get to drink a lot of beer in the field as well so that's always good fun um but you you learn loads and then as as we're going through the geology you get to do like a planetary um option as as well so I stuck more with the core geology I got a little bit more into geochemistry learned a little bit about some of the planetary side of it and then did a, a master's research project looking at um actually uh, paleoclimate on earth um, using noble gas analysis techniques and using dating techniques using noble gases, the, the argon-argon dating technique. And then some of these um, analytical techniques and approaches can be very much applied to the moon as well. And uh, the supervisor, Katie Joy, she, she was the one that really sort of engaged and you could, you could apply these to the moon. So I sort of, I started to look at a PhD and I, as it turned out, I couldn't choose whether to do sort of a more earth or moon focused one and in the end they, I just sort of did a mashup of, of the two and really be it was really cool to do this kind of comparative um analysis looking at the the volatile history of the earth moon systems uh lo- looking at these these different rocks that's when I first got my hands on the Apollo samples and then I haven't really looked back 
after that. So I have to, yeah, it was, it was an unusual route through it. It hadn't originally been on my mind, but I really have to thank uh, certainly people like Katie Joy for really opening my eyes to that and making sure that I, I grabbed opportunities around it. So I got other experiences associated with it as well. So, so that was kind of more my route towards the moon. So you're both alumni of the University of Manchester. Um, how did studying at Manchester help your career? Uh, I mean, tremendously, I think. Like, I wouldn't be where I was, oh, um, now without, like, like, the help and support of the people at Manchester. So, uh, like, Fran's already mentioned Katie Joy, uh, who's, like, a huge name in the world of uh, the lunatics, you know, or, or lunar sample people. Um, so, like, she, she was great in kind of uh helping helping and guiding uh your like at least my career i'm pretty sure it'd be the same for fran as well um and um also there, there's a couple of honorable mentions as well like ray burgess was my supervisor and he was amazing as well he's just like so i mean apart from being a manchester city fan which i i think i still hold against him but you know um uh he's that yeah he was great and even because I did my undergraduate there um, as well, and like it's just a really nice uh, like department. You know, you can I think like it was comfortable to go to most of the uh, the lecturers and just ask them questions. Um, I was always a little bit shy, so I, I was never great at going and asking questions. But looking back on it now, I was like, you could go to anybody and ask them anything, and you know, no, you know, they would just give you advice and help it's a really nice department it's really like i learned i learned a lot from that you get to do field work and you know they leave like i did like, with geology you know they they let you go out in the field for six weeks on your own and i thought that was like one of the best experiences ever uh i spent six weeks in southeast spain mapping just like looking at rocks and mapping away uh it was delightful uh so yeah um manchester yeah, I definitely wouldn't be where I am now without like the help and uh, opportunities that Manchester gave us. Yeah, definitely, definitely for me. So sort of working backwards a bit, I suppose. The from the PhD levels, we said the, the supervisors are huge. I also had Ray Burgess and Katie Joy, but also Trish Clay. She was she was brilliant at helping with some of the the analytical techniques, helping me with getting up to speed in the in the lab as well, which can be quite time consuming but it, as, as Nat says it was really open door there's um you're not always going to know everything if you're sort of focused in on one technique but you really want to be learning and understanding the bigger picture in the context of the moon and the questions you're asking everyone was really good you could go and ask them and say can you help me with these I had someone helping me remember how to do matrices to sort of understand some of my data and the rest of it and and, and actually you know normally people are quite were happy to help you and they're just interested that you care what they're doing a lot of the time as well so that's that's really nice but certainly Manchester yeah I mean I don't know what it's like nowadays but for us you got, you got loads of trips they were funded at Manchester as well they made sure you did do this six-week yeah. mapping project not every university does that and that is a really big step for for a geologist to have that you can become a chartered geologist with that experience there as well it's quite a broad range of of scope of what they got so you really got the full picture it wasn't honing in too much on any one, one specific thing, that's how I was able to actually explore through different 
different areas of structural and core geology and looking at then going into this kind of paleoclimate and then into the moon and the rest of it. So, so there's, there's, there's lots of options. There's lots of different routes through and um, lots of, um, you get taught lots of analytical hands-on approaches. You even get to be outside with seismic plates and hammers making, doing geophysical profiles and the rest of it. So you, you do get the hands-on experience as well as all the theory. And it really, the fact that Nat and I both did our undergrad masters and PhD there does does speak volumes <laughs> for how well it was working. Perhaps not always the best advice is getting a little bit of variety puns perhaps does work. But for me, that all of that directly did help where I am today. It managed, it's, I've never been that confident to really put myself forward for things. Uh, you know, I feel like I have to tick all the boxes, which isn't the best advice. You should really put yourself out there. But actually, the, the job that was advertised at European Space Agency, it was one of the first times I could really look at an application and go hang about. I'm ticking a lot of the boxes here, and that was all from the, the training and the experiences I had from going to Manchester. So for me, it did it did directly directly help, even if it came a little bit late in life for me as well. Cool. I just have one final question. Um, maybe putting you on the spot. Um, Neil Armstrong is going to the moon. He says this iconic line, right? Uh, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You are going to the moon, so you were Neil Armstrong. Would you have? Could you beat that line? I know there's a story like where he um, he he didn't say it right, right? He missed he missed said the line, right? He said he's supposed to say one small step for a man, but he doesn't say a, so it doesn't really make sense. So you've got an opportunity, you can beat that line. What have you got? That's a amazing That's question. The one. <laughs> I was like, I never like I've never thought about it. I have, I don't know. I think I oh, I don't know. I have to think about this one. Uh, I assumed it would be about Man United or something. With you. I, well, you know, I thought that would have been uh, easy for you now. Like, tell them, tell them what your, your lab name is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, our lab name is... Uh, uh, it's the Mid-Atlantic Noble Gas Research Lab, but we shorten it to Moon Girl. So it's uh, pretty nicely named, considering the work that we do in there. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe one small step for Manchester? No, I don't uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it would some. It'd be something Mancunian for sure. Like, I'd, I'd have to get some sort of. Like, I don't know. I think we'd have to start working on the puns. Bad puns. Yeah. Right. You'd have to. Yeah. I don't know. I. I'd either be stunned silence, or it'd be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or just burst into tears like we did when we both first saw the Grand Canyon. Got 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 a little yeah. something out there, didn't we? Yeah, for a moment. We did. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh no, it's just oh, dust. It's the uh, dust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a really good know. question. Wait, do you, do you have, do you have a line that you would say? Yeah, you, you've had time to think about this. Come on. Sorry, we've failed. We've failed with your question. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I feel like that line is so iconic now, right? And it's such a good right. line. And yeah. it's like, can you beat that? I don't know if I could. Maybe this just shows how good that line was that we can't, we can't think of one. Maybe we'll uh, open up as like a competition for like the listeners to send in their, their best moon line. Yeah, no, get the kids involved. They'll ace it. Sounds good. <laughs> and I wait a minute. We'll end up mooning at Moonface or something, though, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I think I have to get back with you with a statement. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Unless we can go like grand day out and be like we forgot the crackers or something like that. A 
huge thanks to Nat and Fran for sharing their wonderful insight and experiences and the best of luck with their incredible careers. Next month, we'll be releasing a special crossover episode where we speak to some of our PhD students who have set up the brilliant Have You Heard podcast, which focuses on science misinformation and misreporting in the news. You can find out more about The Buzz podcast at manchester.ac.uk forward slash The Buzz. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at UOMSciEng, and you can also search for our Facebook and YouTube accounts. If you have any questions about today's episode, our email address is fscmarketing at manchester.ac.uk. See you next time.